If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, where we will look for the last time, probably not in Embassy Church's history moving forward, but for the last time in this three-year-long sermon series called The Gospel According to Matthew, the title of this first book of the New Testament. This is the last sermon in a series that has taken our church over three years to complete. It has been 112 sermons, if you include today's final message. I didn't plan it this way, but it could possibly not be any better timing, right, than to finish the Gospel of Matthew today, the story of resurrection from chapter 28 on Easter Sunday. So it's the end. The end of a long book, the end of a long 112 sermon series. But is it the end? Is it the end of the gospel, the end of the good news, the end of our focus on the story and the life of Jesus? Well, it's a yes and a no. It's certainly the end of this sermon series. But in many ways, it's not an end. Matthew 28, the way it's told, the story of resurrection, I think Matthew wants us to know this is just the beginning. Let me read the passage and explain what I mean. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he has said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they had saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The big idea of today's message is the big idea of the entire Bible because it's the big idea of the whole gospel. In one sentence, the big idea is that Jesus, he is the beginning. He is the end. Or as it said in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, he is the beginning. He is the end. As you look at Matthew 28, You read the accounting of the resurrection of Jesus. You see Jesus bringing one world to an end. The original creation of this world is coming to an end. This world full of pain and suffering. When Jesus dies, that world dies with it. But when he rises again from the dead, a new world is launching into the present world. The story of Israel The story of Israel is a story not just of one nation, but of all of humanity. A new kind of Adam, a new representative for all of the humans on the earth. That story, too, is being fulfilled in Jesus. The beginning of Israel's story and its end. The original goal and purpose of God's plans of salvation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The crushing of the serpent's head. The promises made to Abraham. Those things are coming to their final goal. One world is ending. Certain promises are fulfilling. The death of Jesus is bringing these things to their climactic and ultimate purpose. And then when we see Jesus risen, reigning, ruling, he's bringing about a new way, a new way to live, a new way to be human, a new world, a new creation. And I don't know about you, but some of my favorite stories, whether they're in books that you read, movies that you watch, my favorite stories are those when you get to the very end, something happens, something is discovered and revealed that makes you go back and reread the whole story. That is exactly what Matthew has done in Matthew chapter 28. It's that kind of story. I believe that when Matthew is writing Matthew 28, he is writing it in such a way that he would want you to be thinking about the beginning of the story. The beginning of this story, Matthew, his gospel, chapters 1 and 2. But even more, it doesn't just take us from chapter 28 and refresh our memories of what happened in the beginning of the story of Matthews 1 and 2, but the very, very beginning. The beginning of all stories. Genesis chapter 1 and the whole Bible. When we read Matthew 28, it should make us reread Matthew and then make us reread Genesis and the rest of scripture. Because Jesus, he is the beginning, he is the end. And the story that Jesus has risen from the dead is a story of returning us to the beginning. So here in this final message of this sermon series, with the number of perfection, the number of wholeness and completion, of finishing something out, the number seven. I'm going to give you seven brief reasons why 
This story points us to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Bookends, full circle. And then three takeaways, lessons for us. So first, seven reasons why when you read Matthew 28, it should make you reread Matthew's gospel, especially Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. First, when we read this story in the very first verse, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary, the name Mary, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. The presence of Mary should remind you of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. There are two Marys that come to the tomb on the first day of the week. One of them is clearly Mary Magdalene, but then there is the other Mary. And there's a lot of details we could go into, but some scholars are arguing that this is none other than the Mary that we find in Matthew chapter 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Either way, I think that the the concept of a Mary, and then even just a, a few pages or paragraphs before Matthew 27, there was a Joseph. So right here at the end of Matthew's gospel, you get introduced to a Joseph, not Joseph, the father of Jesus, stepfather, that is, but a Joseph and a Mary. In the presence of these two characters, in light of the other six details that we will cover, might make you think, oh yeah, Mary and a Joseph. Mary was at the beginning of this story. She was the one at the very beginning of Jesus' life when he took his first breath when his heart started to beat out into this world for the very first time, when he first emerged from her womb into the world, now again, Mary is here at the tomb. You could say it this way, from the womb to the tomb. Mary is at the beginning and at the end. And it should remind us that this ending takes us back to the beginning. That's point number one. Mary, the presence of of a Mary. Point number two, angels. The angels and their message. Look at verse two again, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Why was there an earthquake? Well, because an angel, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and then sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He, he is not here for he has risen. And then he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The presence of a Mary and now the presence of angels. Just notice there their presence, their appearance, descending from heaven, rolling away the stone, announcing the resurrection of Jesus. The very first time we read about angels in Matthew's gospel was in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant with a child, that this child was born of the Holy Spirit, and that even though he was ready to divorce her and put her away quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to assure Joseph that this child was not born of man, but born of God. Then in chapter 2, when the Magi deceive Herod and return home without telling Herod where this king of the Jews was born, it was again an angel that appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to go to Egypt and escape the sword of King Herod. And once again, when Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph telling him to return to the land 
of Galilee. Angels do not appear anywhere else in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1 and 2 and Matthew 28. There are other angels that are talked about, but they do not appear in the narrative except on these bookends of Matthew 1 and 2 and 28. The birth of Jesus and the new birth of new life through Jesus' resurrection. But it's more than that. It's not just that there are angels there. It is what they say. When we read what they are saying to Joseph, it is about going here and doing that. In Matthew's chapters 1 and 2, we see an angel come to Joseph and saying, take Mary as your wife. Go to Egypt. Go to Galilee. And the angel was showing Joseph where to go and when to do it. And in the same way, the angel of the Lord appears at the tomb of Jesus and is giving directions. Go here. Do this. Say these things. So more specifically, the angels are directing them to Galilee, both in Matthew 1 and 2 and Matthew 28. Which brings us to our third point. The appearance of Mary, the appearance and message of angels, and more specifically, Galilee. Galilee. Tell the disciples that Jesus is risen, and the angels told the women that he is going to Galilee. And then look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus, they met, he met them, and he said, Greetings. I find this part odd. Jesus has been dead. And the first thing he says is just the, the basic classic phrase for, hi. I mean, just put yourself in those shoes. You thought Jesus was dead. And then he appears. Hi. How are you guys doing? I really want to know how he said that hi. Was it a hi? Or just a casual hi? Either way, greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There it is again. The angels are talking about Galilee. The resurrected Jesus, after saying hi, says, go to Galilee. What's the deal with Galilee? The very end of the gospel, the disciples gather together and look down at verse 16. One more time, the 11 disciples, there they are. They're in Galilee and they're on a mountain where Jesus had directed them. When we see the, the presence of Galilee, it's taking us back to the beginning. It's reversing the whole story. Jesus' progress of going from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now we're going from Jerusalem to Galilee. Galilee was the place where it all began. It's where Jesus grew up just outside of Galilee and Nazareth. It's where he first proclaimed the gospel. And it's where he gave his most well-known teaching of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain in Galilee. And here we are, at the end of the story, on a mountain in Galilee, getting instructions from Jesus to his disciples. It's where it all began, and it's where it all ends. Unless Matthew's trying to tell us this is no ordinary ending. This ending is a new beginning. This must mean that Jesus' ministry is not ending with his death. It's as if, oh, we're just getting started. Because of the resurrection, the conquering of death, his ministry is now starting over. Matthew 28 takes us back to the beginning not so that we could start all over from the beginning, but so there could be a new kind of start of a new kind of ministry. So that's the third point. We've got Mary, we've got angels. We got angels saying, go to Galilee. We got Jesus talking about Galilee, Jesus in Galilee. Number four, the promise of a God who will be with us. The promise of a God who will be with us. Look at the very last line, the last sentence. You close the book of Matthew 
And these are the words that you close with. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Shouldn't that remind you of the beginning? When Jesus was first announced, the purpose of his coming was to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. At the end of the gospel, the very last line is, God will be with us. Which should redirect your mind if you've not already been thinking this. Hey, didn't, didn't Matthew tell us about God being with us? The goal of the birth of Jesus was for God and man to dwell together. That God would be with, with us. The goal of the resurrection, the goal of the ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit of God is that God would be with us. Number five. The last words of Jesus, the last words of the Gospel of Matthew, they should redirect your mind to the very first words of Matthew. We just saw that I am with you always, but right before that, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, verse 18, has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you read that last line, that great commission, that all familiar passage for many of you that you've heard thousands of times if you've been in one of these mission-driven, evangelical, outreach-oriented kind of churches. You probably got them memorized. And sometimes the familiarity means you just scratch the basic surface and you don't see what's really going on. I hope you're listening, guys. I know there's noise and distractions, but I like this point a lot. I want you to listen. The very last words of Jesus. Why did he say those things? Why did Matthew end his gospel this way? Well, is it just to send off the troops? Get the saints charged up? A great commission? Oh, it's so, so much more than that. It should remind you of the very first words of Matthew. What are the first words of Matthew? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's in English, but if I were to read it in its original language, it would be, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. The genesis. Why would that be significant? It should remind you about genealogy and genesis, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, Matthew has constructed his gospel that the very first word should make you think of the very first stories of the whole Bible, the genesis of all creation. And the very last words of his gospel, the Great Commission, should remind you of the very last words of, and this is the part that most of you maybe don't know, because you're used to reading an English Old Testament. But the gospel readers, the first readers of Matthew's gospel, they would have not missed this. The very last words of the Jewish Bible, the last book of the Jewish Bible is not Malachi. For centuries, when the Bible of the Old Testament was finished and collected, it was Genesis and it was Second Chronicles. And this is what Second Chronicles says. The very last lines, now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled by the prophet 
Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put this in writing. And so says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, he has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Last words, final words of the Old Testament. You're a Jewish boy or girl. You've heard these words a hundred, a thousand times. You've got them memorized. The final words of the Old Testament for a Jewish boy or girl would have been, and so let him go up. Why does Matthew end with go? Go and build the temple of the church by making disciples because the last words of the Old Testament were go and build the temple. The beginning of Matthew, Genesis. The end of Matthew, 2 Chronicles. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the Genesis and he is the one that has all authority and is commanding his saints to go and build just like Cyrus did in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Number six, when we read Matthew 28, we should see the powerlessness of those in power. Both the end of the gospel and the beginning of the gospel have officials, government officials, leaders, religious leaders, who seem as if they're in power, they're in charge. But the resurrection of Jesus, the word of God, it will not be thwarted, it will not be stopped, his plans will succeed. So in Matthew 28, look at verses 11 and following. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and they said, tell the people, that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Here we have an account of what's going on behind the scenes. Jesus has risen and behind the scenes you have government officials that are upset about this announcement, this proclamation. So they're trying to thwart the plans of God. Evil plans by government and religious officials will never stop and thwart the power and the plan of God. And all of this should remind us of the very beginning when God planned that through a child, the serpent's head would be crushed through the seed of the woman. And Herod is trying to be like a new Pharaoh putting to end a little Jewish boy. His desire to kill the baby Jesus did not come to fruition because God's plans and his prophetic words were being fulfilled. Read back through Matthew chapter 2 and see all of the prophecies that are being fulfilled through Herod's decree. In other words, the end shows us the same lesson we already learned in the beginning. Those who are in power and think that they have might and strength and armies and soldiers, they are powerless according to or compared to the hand of God. When heaven invades earth and the powers of earth stare at God's power in the face, they are shaken. They're like the dead men that when the angel descended from heaven, 
They were afraid and they were as good as dead. That's Easter, my friends. Easter is the fundamental shift in the balance of power. Easter is about when the God of heaven overthrows the powers of earth. The resurrection of Jesus is the earthquake that shakes the foundations of all that we hold dear on this present decaying earth. One by one, all the powers that conspired to kill Jesus have been stopped, toppled, thrown over. There's this big giant stone representing all of the solidity of man's plans to keep God down and in. Large stones, the ones that would build temples and towers and city walls and skyscrapers and fortresses. Jesus' grave is locked tight. They made sure there were guards in front of it and it was sealed with some kind of wax. But then an angel descends from heaven and it seems as if he pushes this stone away like a feather using it as a throne as he then sits on top of it and says, behold, God has showed up. Then we think of the guy with the biggest army, the guy with the biggest arsenal of weapons, the guy with the most nuclear powers, drones, troops. That's the guy in this present earth that has the most power. We feel security from terrorists because of more power by men. We have learned through the ways of this world to trust in horses and chariots. But the resurrection teaches us, do not put your trust in horses and chariots. Put your trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When an angel descends from heaven, the brave and seemingly strong battle-hardened guards and troops fall to the ground and look like flimsy dead men. If there's one thing on this earth that seems like it's got the greatest grip, the biggest power, well, it would be death itself, wouldn't it? And what we've seen throughout our lives and throughout the world's history is that no matter how strong or powerful you are, no matter how rich, no matter how great, you will rise and you will fall. Presidents have come and gone. Celebrities are quickly forgotten. And in the end, They all fall before the power of death. But when an angel comes down from heaven, he rolls away the stone and declares the tomb is empty. For the first time in human history, death lost. For the first time in this decayed world, a man was raised to never die again. All the powers that the earth could throw at God have been overthrown by God by an invasion from heaven coming down to earth. What looks like strength is actually weakness. And on the other hand, what looks like defeat and weakness has been transformed now into power and victory. Remember, when the angel descends from heaven, he does not come to the mighty, powerful, strong, discipled men, but to the weak women of this world who become braver than the soldiers themselves. The dead become more than alive than those who are living. The cross becomes more powerful than the weapons that man could ever produce. So remember this. When you read the end of Matthew's gospel, it's telling you what you learned in the beginning. Those who think they are powerful are actually powerless. And those who think they have nothing to offer and have no power to give can, through the power of the Spirit of God from heaven, become the greatest movement, 
changing action results in the, the whole world. Seventh and finally, when we read the end of the story, Matthew chapter 28, the nations, they bow down and they worship. We saw this in verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. He didn't stop it. He accepted it. He received it. Some of you, this flies over your head. Okay, so what? This is a Jewish book written by a Jewish man, written for a Jewish audience. Jews never ask any of them today or in the past throughout history. They will never worship a man. But here, born and raised ethnic Jews are bowing down at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him, and no one is stopping it, not even Jesus himself. Then in verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain with which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. The bowing down and worshiping us should remind us. The very first time Jesus received worship was when he was a baby. The beginning of the story. Matthew chapter 2, where men from the east traveled a great distance following a star and bowing down and giving gifts to Jesus. The end of the story reminds us of the very beginning of the story. The beginning showed that Gentiles, even far off Gentiles, would come from great lengths and distances to worship at the feet of Jesus. But now here at the end of the story, it's Jewish men, Jewish women, bowing down at the feet of Jesus and giving him the worship that he is due. Now, maybe one of these would seem like a coincidence or like, Phil, you're just reading into it because you're bored. You have too much time on your hands to study the Bible. But when you put all of these seven things together, are you not convinced? Do you not see the end of Matthew's gospel reaches back, not just to the beginning of Matthew 1 and 2, but to the beginning of all beginnings, back to the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Look back at verse 1 one more time. In verse 1, we're told when the resurrection happened. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. If that's not a clue, I don't know what else is. Matthew wants you, at the end of the story, to think to the very, very beginning. When the Sabbath was instituted, the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Jesus is dead all day on Sabbath day. Then, the bright sun rising on this first day of a new week. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And this is not just a new week. This is not just a new day. It is the first of a final climactic ending of all the former days. The days of old creation and the new day of new creation. We're not starting over back at Genesis chapter 1. We are improving upon the beginning of God's creation. We're bringing God's original plan of creation to its climactic and end goal. God's purpose from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 was to bring together God and man, heaven and earth, to raise the earth into the heavens and to raise and bring the heavens down to the earth. This purpose from the very beginning was to remove the boundaries that would separate us from God so that we could enjoy the perfect fellowship between the glories of heaven and the beauty of earth. And more than any other gospel, from beginning to end, 
Matthew is telling us the fulfillment of this purpose has come to completion. Matthew uses the word heaven 70 times in his gospel, more than every other New Testament book, twice as much as any of the other three gospel writers. The story of Jesus from the beginning to the end is that God has come with man so that man could come into the presence of God. The story of Jesus is a story about heaven coming to earth and heaven invading earth so that heaven could bring about renewal on this earth. So let's close on this Easter Sunday with three lessons. If you've not already gleaned some lessons, here's just three very easy, bite-sized little pieces of application to feed into your mouth. Number one, the gospel does not give us a second chance. The gospel gives us a whole new life, a new creation. Many people dream about starting over. In fact, one of the false gospels of the Christian faith is that forgiveness of sins It's basically God giving you a second chance. No, not at all. This isn't about second and third and fourth chances. This is not about you hearing that there's forgiveness of sin. So let's try again this week. It's about saying, let's be done with the former way of life. Let's be done with the former second and third and fourth chances. Let's have a whole new heart, a whole new life, a whole new creation, a whole new goal, a whole new purpose. Many people wish that they could go back in time. How many, how many of you dream and think, man, if I could just go back and, and redo this one thing. And every time anybody tries to redo human history, they just make it worse. It's not what you need. You don't need to redo something that you messed up. You need a whole new thing to enter in. So let's not dream and meditate and hope for and long for a chance to start over. Every church, Sunday. Every time you come back to church on a Sunday, it's, it's not to, to be reminded, well, there's forgiveness for all your past mistakes. Let's try again. It's to be reminded that a gospel happened. News was announced. A God came down and entered into this broken world, and he's making and has made and has already started a whole new world, a whole new life. Many of you need this sobering reality to be told right to your face, this world and all that's around with it. You're so used to, that's just the way things are. Easter tells us, no, that's not the way things will always be. There is hope. There is new life. And even though we can't reverse time and go back and redo things, we can't go back to the Garden of Eden. We can't go and tell Adam, hey, don't eat from that tree. It's done. It happened. But what we can do is know that it already has begun. The life of the new age, the coming dawn of the new day. The spirit has been poured out. Our God has come and he has rescued. So friends, the God of heaven does something much better than giving you a second chance. He gives you a second whole new life, a whole new world, a whole new creation. And that's the first lesson. If you're stuck in cycles of just feeling like the same thing's just gonna always happen again, Easter smacks you in your face and says, no, there is a chance. There is a power. There is a new way. There is new hope. Believe it and live according to it. Secondly, even though the resurrection is true, many will struggle and even doubt. Friends, what you need today is not facts. You could be looking at Jesus in the face, the resurrected Jesus, Do you realize in verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to a mountain 
just like Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. And then there's this little line, but some doubted. Are you kidding me? Who puts that in there? Who adds that little detail? That's not a great climactic end to your story. Unless it's true. Unless that's real and authentic. Unless that's honest. And I tell you that one little detail more than anything else I could do in terms of history and facts and figures, science and empirical studies, history. We could go into all those details, but I tell you that one little detail and some doubted should give you the credibility to know that these gospel writers are not making something up. If you're going to make up a story, you're not going to say, oh yeah, right at the end of the story, uh, most of the first followers doubted. You just don't do that. That's not the, the stuff of legends. We already know that to this day, look at earlier in verse 15, to this day, this story is being spread to the Jews. That language is showing you that this was written early, that it was written in factual history, and that people could go around and confirm whether this story was true or not. It was eyewitness testimony. And we could go on and on. Here's the point. It's true. There's no real hope if this is just some metaphorical thing. It really did happen. But as a church, as an application, as a a moment to just stop and pause and say, guys, people are going to doubt. Some of you are doubting. Some of you are living often in a back and forth between doubt and trust, a faith and fear. And I just want us to, as a, as a church to just acknowledge the raw honesty of the scriptures. Many of us will doubt. In Jude's letter, the very end of the New Testament, he encourages the church to be patient with those who doubt. So I ask you, Embassy Church, will we be the kind of people that just go around and say, well, stop doubting. Just stop it. Believe. It's true. It's fact. It's human history. Or will we be patient, long-suffering, pray with, walk with, weep with doubters. They doubted when they stared at Jesus in the face. You're going to doubt even when you don't have Jesus right in front of your face. So I encourage us embassy. Even though the resurrection is true, many of us will struggle. And we need to be the kind of church that allows people to talk about struggles and to talk about doubts. I was listening to a guy earlier this week and he said, the church should be a whole lot more like a 12-step addiction program than it should be a suburban book club. Is that what you want? It's a little book club. We get the Bible. It's safe. It's nice and neat and tidy. Or can we be a true, authentic community where people are free to share, I'm really struggling, whether it's with sins or certain doubts. Third and finally, the mission of the church is driven by the message of the church. We see this in the very final words of the Great Commission When Jesus, who says and declares, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Notice the alls. All authority, heaven on earth. Go, therefore, baptize all the nations. He has all authority over all the nations, and all the nations are to be baptized, made disciples. And they're to be made disciples in the singular name. Do you notice this? The name of, not the names, not the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three persons, in the name of all authority in heaven and earth has been given from the Father to the Son, applied by the Spirit. And they, when we make disciples, we are to teach people to obey, not just teach to learn and memorize, learn in English and Greek and Hebrew, 
No, we're to observe, obey, teach them to obey every single one of Jesus' commandments because he has all authority, and that authority means that every single word that he says matters and is weighty and important. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. His all-encompassing omnipresence, all authority to all nations so that all peoples, tribes, tongues, and languages will worship and bow down to the presence of Jesus Christ. And he will always be with us all the time. Therefore, let's go. In the same way that the Old Testament ends and says, go up and build. Jesus declares, go and build on the basis of this climactic message. I have all authority in heaven on earth. Therefore, baptize, teach, make disciples to all peoples. Embassy, the church has not accomplished its mission yet. The mission of Embassy Church, we started seven years ago. We said, we exist in order to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations. At this present moment, as far as we can tell, all nations all tribes and peoples, all ethnes, do not bow at the feet of Jesus. One day they will, and it is our job to work with the Spirit of God moving among us and in us to send us out and go. So let us remember that the mission of the church is based on this message of the gospel and the authority that Jesus has over all of heaven and all of earth. He went down to the very depths of the earth and rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven so that the entire traveling journey from heaven down to earth, under the earth in the grave, up again on the earth, and then back into the heaven. He has all of the authority. There is not one square inch. There is not one place. There is not one zone of realm of, of existence that he does not have authority over. And therefore, we should go and make disciples, baptizing, starting churches, and making this our aim and ambition. Ambition. We don't stop here. One church has been started seven years ago called Embassy Church. A year ago, another church was planted in Woodstock, Gospel Grace Church. We've sent out missionaries to the nations. We support work around the world. Friends, let's continue to proclaim the good news that Jesus is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks and praise for this wonderful good news. The good news of not just another chance, but of a new life, of a new creation, of new bodies, of a new heaven and earth joined together again. We thank you that you love us and that you've demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us in our place. We want to pray that we would believe. We would doubt our doubts. We would trust in your word. We would encourage each other, even as we struggle along and falter and trip up. I pray, God, that you would make us a community, a safe place, a haven, a refuge for all the doubting, all the weary and heavy laden, that we would find rest in the Sabbath rest of new life that has entered into this broken and weary world. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.